this morning from 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Good morning. I've been reminded over and over again this week that we are not in control. It's been a number of friends who have lost loved ones this week, a number of calls of people who ended up in the hospital unexpectedly with various problems and issues. A couple of days ago, we got a call and found out that Jeannie's, my wife's niece's husband, uh, was flying a plane trying to take off and was killed in a fiery plane crash with their 15-year-old son. And uh, So, in many ways, we're just not in control. During first service, the service was interrupted for 10, 15 minutes because someone went down over in this section over here. Hopefully you'll be fine this service. And the paramedics had to come in and take him out. Ken Weirs, but... Uh, uh, we sounds like he's doing okay. Sounds like he'll be all right. But just two or three weeks ago, Ken was up in Alaska catching huge halibut, having a great time, and now he's in the hospital. We're not in control. We like to think we're in control. <laughs> we try to run our own lives. We sometimes think we're in charge of our own lives, but who really is in charge? Who's in charge? Who's in your own life? I mean, in the big picture, God's in control, but how about for you and me in our own lives? Who's really in charge? We can maybe say that Jesus is in charge, but who really calls the shots for you, for me? 
Who makes the decisions? Is it you? Who makes the decisions about your money, your time, what you do with your life, how you live your life? Is it you? Is it someone else in your life? A spouse? A friend? A child? A parent? Is it Jesus? Does Jesus run your life? Is that obvious? <laughs> you know, the, this is one of the most important questions you can ever ask about your own life. Who's in charge, really, really, of my life, of your life? Today we move into 2 Samuel. Last week we saw at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul is defeated in battle with the Philistines. The Israelites run for their lives. They're wiped out. Saul ends up on Mount Gilboa. He's wounded by the archers. He's afraid of being tortured by the Philistines. Asks his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refuses, so Saul falls on his own sword and dies. In our passage today, David learns of Saul's death. And this becomes a test for David. David, who will run your own life? Will you seize the crown now that you have an opportunity? Will you take life into your own hands? Or will you trust God to run your life? Will you truly let the Lord be Lord of your life? Who's going to be on the throne of your life? Self or Jesus? That's the same test that you and I face often, over and over again. And as we discuss it this morning, it'll be a challenge for us to consider who really is in charge. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage together, as we consider the test that David had, we recognize that it's the same test you give us over and over. You are sovereign, and yet you give us the opportunity to either submit our lives to you and let you be Lord of our lives or try to run them ourselves. We confess that too often we try to keep charge of our own life. But today, Lord, let it be different. Let this passage penetrate us in a way so we begin to more and more let you be Lord, truly be Lord of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First verse of the, this book, 2 Samuel, is this. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained in Ziklag two days. And then the third day, a man came from Saul's camp. It sets the context for us. Let's remind ourselves of what's going on in David's life at this point. Remember, David's been running from Saul for many years. Probably 10 to 14 years, somewhere in there in the wilderness. And at one point he finally said, I've had it, I'm going to run and hide with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. Not a good choice, but he ends up there. The king, Achish, gives him a, a city, city of Ziklag, and then there's going to be this huge battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, where the very one where Saul gets killed. King Achish says, you've got to fight with me. You're my vassal now. And David says, okay. But the other Philistines say, no way. We aren't letting David come. He'll turn on us. Don't let him come. So he goes back. And when he goes back to Ziklag, he finds that the city 
has been destroyed by the Amalekites. His wives, his children, and all his men's goods and wives and families, all of them have been taken away by the Amalekites. So David finally decides to seek the Lord in the situation, says, Lord, should I go after them? Will I rescue them? The Lord says yes, and he goes and rescues his family, all the men's families, takes all the spoil, kills the Amalekites, and he comes back to Ziklag. While he's been chasing the Amalekites, the huge battle ensues between Israel and the Philistines. And the Israelites are defeated. So David hears from this man who shows up, this mysterious man from Saul's camp. And it says he came and he has dust on his head, his clothes are torn, and he's showed up after two days, probably on the third day, to David's camp. And David says, where are you from? He says, I come from the battle. What we don't realize is that this man, this mysterious man who's shown up to tell David about what's happened in the war, has traveled over 80 miles by foot to get there. It's taken him probably a good three days to get there by foot from Mount Gilboa where the battle happened to where David is. This man has done everything he could to get there. He's worked hard to get this news to David. And he appears to be in mourning. He's got dust on his head, tears his clothes. So David is naturally anxious to hear what's happened. What's going on? Where are you from? He says, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And he said, how did it go? Tell me. He wants to know. How did the battle go? And the man says, the people fled. Many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. He says, how do you know this is true, David? He wants to know that it's true. He wants to just not take the man's word for it. He needs confirmation, so he asks for confirmation. And the man gives it to him. But think about the man's story for a moment. We know the truth from the end of 1 Samuel, how Saul died. He was wounded by an archer. He wanted his armor bearer to kill him, but he didn't, so he fell on his own sword and died. But this man's story doesn't fit the facts. (laughs) In fact, as he tells his story, notice that he gives incredible detail. Verse 6, the young man who told him said, By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Now, think with me for a minute. There's a huge battle going on. Two big armies, the Philistines, the Israelites, and everybody who's around can hear the sounds of war. They know this is coming. This is a huge battle. And he says, oh, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Something's wrong with this story right from the start. (laughs) But he gives a lot of detail about it. He's, He's trying to convince David that the story is true. Like all good liars... They give a lot of detail to make it sound more realistic, more true. But clearly, we know, David maybe doesn't, but you and I know that this man is lying. He's a good actor, he's a deceiver, but he's lying. And he makes himself sound like he's not responsible. I just happened to be there, and boy, Saul was there, and he was in anguish. The chariots were after him. Well, for one, that's a lie, because... 
If he's up on Mount Gilboa, the chariots stayed down in the plain, they wouldn't be able to get up on the mountain. So even what he's saying about the battle is wrong. But he says, oh, the chariots were hard after him. And he's leaning on his spear. Well, it wasn't a spear, it was a sword. Um, And he says, he looked behind me, said, who are you? I'm an Amalekite. He said, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. He makes him sound himself sound like, well, I, wa- I was just doing what I had to do. Saul asked me to kill him, so I did. And then I took his crown and his armband. And here they are, David. Here's proof that Saul is dead. Interesting. Why do you think he made up this big lie? Well... He's an Amalekite. He's an Amalekite. <laughs> and what was really, what really was he doing on the mountain in the first place? He was obviously a scavenger. He's listening for the sounds of war. He's looking, and now that the war's over, the battle's over, he's sneaking around and he's stealing whatever spoils he can get off the dead bodies. And he happens upon Saul and he thinks, Wow, look at this. I got a crown. This has to be Saul. I got his armlet. This is great. And then he goes, Aha! David's been running from him. This is my chance to get a reward from David. If I show up and even say that I'm the one who actually killed him, because he asked me to, of course. I, you know, it wasn't that I was mean or anything. He asked me to. David will give me a big reward. You see, this Amalekite is doing what Amalekites had always been doing in the history of Israel. Attacking the people of God, taking what they can, taking advantage of the weak, the crushed, the dead. Do you remember where Amalek first shows up? When Israel is coming to the promised land, they're in the wilderness, and Amalek came behind them and began to attack them from behind and those that were the stragglers that were sick, that were weak, were picking them off and killing them as they're wandering through the wilderness. And so God is not happy about this. And he says, they are enemies of Israel. Amalek is always an enemy of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, as they're about to enter the promised land, Moses says this about Amalek. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Amalek became a symbol of the enemies of God right from the beginning. Those who take advantage of Israel when they're down, when they're out. And so back in 1 Samuel, we studied this a few months ago, back in chapter 15, God came to Saul when he first began to reign and said, here's your job. 
Chapter 15, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God devoted them to destruction because they were clearly the enemies of Israel. Saul disobeyed. He didn't carry out that order as God had told him to. And he lost his kingship because of it, because he would not carry out God's holy war against the Amalekites. And that's what this Amalekite is doing. He's taking advantage of Israel. He thinks, okay, I can get in good with David. I can get a reward out of this. This is going to be great. And so he hurries and he has three days to perfect his story (laughs) as he's traveling. He shows up and he tells David this made-up story. This is a great test for David, I think. Think about it for a minute. Here's David. He's refused to kill Saul a couple of times in the wilderness. He's been running. He's been crowned, anointed the rightful heir by Samuel, not yet crowned. But here's his opportunity to seize the crown. Saul's dead. All he has to do is accept the crown from the hands of this Amalekite. David didn't kill Saul, the the heir to the throne. Jonathan is dead. This is his chance to seize the crown for himself. And the Amalekite is appealing to David's pride. David, here's your chance. Seize the crown. It's yours. Legitimately, it's yours. But here's the real test, I think, for David. The same test you and I face often. Will David seize the crown for himself? Will he be in charge of his own life? Or will he wait and let God and the people of God crown him as king? Will David be in charge of his own life or will he let God be in charge? This is a great test that we all face. Will we be in charge of our own lives or will we let Jesus be in charge of our lives? Will he be king or will I be king? Will I do what I think is best or will I do what he says even if I don't understand it fully? You see, this Amalekite assumes that David is just like him. I'm out to get whatever I can. David's going to be just like me, so I'm going to get a reward out of this. (laughs) Folks, there are a lot of Amalekites in our lives. This world is full of Amalekites telling us to seize control for ourselves. You deserve it. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. This is your big chance. And just like this Amalekite, those Amalekites are lying to us. They're appealing to our pride, to our self-dependence, self-control. They're appealing to our fears, our lusts, for power or status. But believe me, folks, these Amalekites that are whispering these things to us, offering us to get for ourselves, are our enemies. They're the enemies of the kingdom of God. They're the enemies of our spiritual life. Who will be Lord of my life? 
Me or Jesus? In our use of money, Scripture makes it clear, be generous with what you have. Everything you have belongs to God. It's not yours. None of it's yours. It's all His. He gave it to you as a gift. Maybe through your work, but He gave it to you, and it's all His. Be generous with what you have, and God will bless you. Maybe not financially, but He will bless you spiritually in other ways, in powerful ways. Blessing comes through being generous. The world says, you better hang on to what you have. That's what the Amalekites in our world say. Who are you going to listen to? Who's going to reign in your life? Self or God? In relationships, the Amalekites in our world say, you've got to hang on to what you could better make sure you're taken care of. You better, uh, in marriage, in relationships, it's 50-50. You better keep score. You better make sure you're getting out of it what you want. Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake is the one who receives it. Deny yourself. Be willing to give 100%, no matter what you get in return, and God will bless you. You'll be on God's side. You'll be living out the spiritual life. But in your marriage, in your relationships, who, who are you listening to? The Amalekites in our world? Are you listening to Jesus, who is really Lord, of your money, your time, your choices? Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The Amalekites in our lives say, you need, you deserve it, you people should be serving you. Your spouse should be serving you. Jesus says, serve others, give your life away, and you'll find spiritual life like you've never experienced before. Who are you listening to? What does your life show? It's a question only you can answer. Am I trying to save myself, or am I following him? Another way to look at this, another question, will I be an Amalekite grasping for myself Or will I be a man or woman of faith, letting Jesus be Lord? Will I do whatever it takes to make sure I come out ahead, taking care of myself? Or will I trust God with my life? That's the choice we have every day, isn't it, folks? And it's the test that David is going through right now. You see, Amalek is a good picture for us of the enemy we face in the world, our own flesh, the enemies of our spiritual life. And Amalek continues to be an enemy of Israel, by the way, throughout their history. Right on through, during the period of kings, the period of judges, the period of kings, and then right up to the period when they are in exile in Babylon. You know the story of Esther. Remember that story? She, the, the people of Israel are threatened. She becomes queen But her old people, all the Jews, are threatened because the evil man Haman wants to kill all the Jews. Do you know 
who Haman is descended from? Amalek. He's an Amalekite. (laughs) You see, Amalek is always out to destroy Israel. And it's just interesting to me that King Herod, the one when Jesus was born and he heard from the Magi that the king had been born and he decided to destroy all the babies in the area of Bethlehem and he had them slaughtered trying to kill the Messiah. King Herod was an Edomite. I'm not sure he was descended from Amalek, but it's very interesting to me that he's an Edomite. Edom, Esau, those are the same name, Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, of Edom. It's very possible that Herod himself is an Amalekite. You see, the Amalekites have been the enemies of the people of God all throughout history. The Jews have recognized this, by the way, and if you read some Jewish writings right up to the present, they see that anybody who's an enemy of the Jewish people, they call Amalek in some of their writings. Yasser Arafat was called an Amalekite. Not literally, but that's what they call him, anybody who's an enemy. And today in some schools, religious schools in Israel, they label the Palestinians as their enemies, as Amalekites, who... God said to destroy in their thinking, in their writing. I think they've totally missed the boat. Because our enemies, the enemies of the spiritual, of the people of God are spiritual enemies, we're told. Ephesians 6, other places. Our enemies are the flesh, the world, who try to destroy us and cause us to depend on ourselves rather than on God. So what do we do with these kinds of enemies? How should we respond to these enemies that we face, these spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh? How should we deal with them? Well, it's very instructive to see how David actually responds. Listen to verse 11. He hears this news. The test has come. Will he trust God or will he take the crown for himself? David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now we don't know whether David actually believes the man. I think he may see through him. But he said, Your words have said you killed the king, and therefore by your own testimony I will put you to death. Very interesting how David responds here, isn't it? He doesn't seize the crown, even though he is the rightful anointed one at this point. He rejects letting self reign. He rejects letting this Amalekite essentially crown him king. And we learn something very important about David's heart here. He's driven not out of concern for himself. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to make sure I'm okay. 
But what he's driven by is concern for the kingdom of God. He weeps because the anointed king is dead. And he weeps for the defeat of the nation of Israel. You see, David is making sure that right from the beginning, his kingdom is going to be ruled not by him, but by God. That's what's most important to him. What does he do? First of all, he mourns. He mourns for God's kingdom, for Saul, for Jonathan, for God's people, it says. Those who have lost the battle. This is a great picture for us, I think. As we look around and if our concern is really for God's kingdom, no matter how we're doing, it won't really matter that much. But we will mourn because we long for more people to know the king. We will long for those who are refusing to follow the king when they claim to be his. We will be people who mourn. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Not that we can't rejoice in Christ and what he's done and the cross and the wonderful gifts of God. We're told to live thankful lives as well, but but deep down there ought to be a sense in us of mourning because we long for the kingdom to come and his will to be done. We long for Jesus to come back and bring justice and righteousness to a confused, broken, messed up world. David mourns. It's a great response. Secondly, what does David do? He puts the Amalekite to death. (laughs) He has him executed. He puts that temptation to run his own life, to take control away from God, to death. He doesn't even let it live in his life. And we must do the same, folks. We can't, we can't play with, well, I'm going to hold on to this part of my life, you know, because it gives me security, whether it's a relationship that we shouldn't be hanging on to or how we handle our money or whatever. I'm going to hang on to this, but Lord, I'll trust you with these other things. And we just get pulled apart because the truth is we can't play that game. Jesus wants all of us. He will not relent until he has it all. All of us. All of our hearts. So when you're tempted, when you are tempted, when I am tempted to to take control out of fear, I've got to, I better protect myself. I better get security my way. Give it to him. Put that to death, that temptation and cling to him and trust him with your life. Put the Amalekite to death. When you're tempted to lie, to steal, to seek pleasure above anything else, to give in to lust, to have an affair, etc., be vicious with that temptation. Put the Amalekite to death. So David mourns, he kills the Amalekite, and then thirdly, what we see in him is he exalts the Messiah. Interesting, when you look at verse 14, David says to the Amalekite, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's Messiah? Literally, that's the Hebrew word, Mashiach. It's Messiah, it's the anointed one. And he's talking about Saul, of course, but 
He exalts that position. Verse 16 again. You have testified against, your own words have testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's Messiah. David exalts the Messiah. And so must we. As we know, Jesus is Lord. He already is Lord. But his kingdom is expanding. We have the opportunity to submit to him as Lord, to help expand the kingdom of God, to let him reign in our lives, to relinquish control to him. Scripture makes it very clear that someday everybody will bow to Jesus as Lord. I don't care who it is. I don't care how powerful a human being they are. I don't care what position they're in. We're told that every knee will bow, Philippians chapter 2, whether in heaven or earth or under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will bow willingly. Hopefully that's us. And some will bow unwillingly. But all will bow, but we have the opportunity now to exalt Jesus as Lord, to recognize Him as Lord, to say to the world around us, Jesus is Lord. I follow a different Lord than you do. Self does not reign. I will not run my own life. Someone else runs my life. Jesus is Lord. Now, a bit of a side, sometimes we get questions, the leadership here at Cole, who's in charge at Cole, because we don't have a senior pastor. Most churches do. People want to know who's in charge. They want to know who to blame <laughs> or who to give credit to, right? <laughs> we believe biblically for us that God has called us to have a board of elders who, where the authority is invested at Cole Community Church, but... We talk and pray all the time as elders. And we remind ourselves that our job is not to be in charge. Our job, our only real job, is to seek the mind of Christ so that He will be in charge. We want Him to run this church. We want Him to reign. And that's why we believe in a plurality of elders where we come to a decision and we all have different ideas and opinions, but we all submit to one another and we seek the Lord and we pray together and we seek the Word together that when a final decision comes out and we all agree, we believe the Lord has led in that process. We're seeking His mind. Who's in charge at Cole Community Church? Well, we hope it's Jesus. We're doing our best to make sure He's in charge. And who's in charge of your life? Who's in charge of my life? Really. Not just words, but who really makes the decisions? Who calls the shots? Is it you? Or are you learning to let Jesus be Lord? Submitting everything to Him in prayer. Being willing to follow wherever He leads. To trust Him with your security and your fears and those things in your life that make us want to take back control. Will we let him be Lord of our lives? I want to look at one word back in verse 11 that really jumped out at me. It's the word all. All. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Do you remember who these men were? The men with David at this point? 
Well, back in chapter 22, verse 2 and 3, David's hiding in the cave of Adullam and all these men come. And it says they were men who were in debt. They were rejected by society. And it says they were bitter of soul. These were hurting, angry, frustrated, rejected men. And over the course of the years as they traveled in the wilderness, these men were constantly saying to David, Go kill Saul! You have a chance! And twice they tried to convince him to kill Saul, but he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. But here, after years of being with David, it says they all wept over Saul's death. They all mourned over the kingdom of God. That strikes me in a powerful way. David was willing to stand up and say, I will let Jesus be Lord of my life. He didn't do it perfectly. We've seen how he struggled. But overall, the big picture of his life was, I will let God reign. I will submit my life to him. I will trust him. And it had a huge impact on the men around him. So that as time goes on, you see these men were willing to die for David and to die for the kingdom of God. What a beautiful picture for us. When we, when just one person is willing to let Jesus be Lord of their lives, others are impacted and the kingdom of God expands. Are you and I willing to be that one person who really lets Jesus be Lord? I'd like us to take a couple minutes of just silent prayer now and let you wrestle with God in what he may be saying to you about maybe an area of your life or areas that you've been hanging on to control of. And he wants you to let it go and let him be Lord of your life in a deeper way. So pray silently and then I'll close us in a couple moments. Who's in charge of my life, Lord? That's a good question. Because I know there's areas I hang on to and I want to control my own life out of my own fear or insecurity, my lack of faith. Lord, for all of us here in this room, may, may we relinquish those things to you more fully than ever before. May we let you be Lord so that this world might see that you are Lord already. Your kingdom is expanding. Lives are being changed because we ourselves are letting you be Lord. We praise you for your love and your care. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. May we submit our lives to you. When it's all been said and done, Lord, may may we be able to say that we lived our lives truly in you and for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.